disrupt yourself. How will you disrupt yourself? How will you disrupt yourself? Welcome to the Disrupt Yourself podcast. I'm Whitney Johnson. Here, we discuss strategies and advice on how to climb the S-curve of learning in your career and life. Disrupting who you are now to slingshot into who you want to be. 2020. It's been a tough year. It, it has. We find ourselves concerned, isolated, emotionally exhausted, and overall just spent. Throw in a season of political tumult, it is no wonder we are able to function at all. That's why I'm so excited for this episode. I can think of few people who are better to share with you during this time of uncertainty. Brene Brown. She needs no introduction, but here are a few of her bona fides. Dr. Brene Brown is a research professor at the University of Houston, where she holds the Huffington Foundation Brene Brown Endowed Chair at the Graduate College of Social Work. She's also a visiting professor in management at the University of Texas at Austin McCombs School of Business. She spent the past two decades studying courage, vulnerability, shame, and empathy. And she's the author of five number one New York Times bestsellers, The Gifts of Imperfection, Daring Greatly, Rising Strong, Braving the Wilderness, and her latest book, Dare to Lead. Brene hosts the Unlocking Us podcast and the Dare to Lead podcast. Her TED Talk, The Power of Vulnerability, is one of the top five most viewed TED Talks of all time with over 50 million views. She's also the first researcher to have a filmed lecture on Netflix. The Call to Courage debuted in April 2019. Brene helps me remember what's beautiful about the human condition. Brene is a balm for the soul. Brene Brown, we are delighted to have you today and congratulations on your Netflix special. We watched it and it was fantastic. Oh, thank you, Whitney. I appreciate it. It's such a weird thing to have out there, but I'm, you know, you know the feeling, equal parts, vulnerable, brave, scared, excited. One of the first questions I ask people on the podcast is where people grew up. So most of us know that you grew up in Texas. The question is, where in Texas did you grow up and what did you want to be when you grew up? Born in San Antonio and raised in San Antonio and Houston. I either wanted to drive long haul, a long haul truck, like an 18 wheeler, um, because we had CBs in our cars growing up. And like, once you got to be 10 or so, you got your own handle and you could do the whole like breaker one nine. So I either wanted to do that, or I wanted to be a Dallas cowgirl cheerleader, or after Love Boat started, I wanted to be a cruise director. You wanted to be Julie. Yeah, Julie. on The, the cruise director. For sure. Okay. So you did not have a plan to become an academic. <laughs> <laughs> no. You know, it's, is it, I don't know who said it, maybe Maya Angelou. You got to be able to see it in order to be it. So what I saw growing up were, you know, long haul drivers cheerleaders at football games and television, which was, you know, the love boat. We drove up and down 10 a lot because, you know, we lived in Houston. Both of my parents are from San Antonio. So when we weren't living in San Antonio, we were, you know, going to San Antonio every other weekend to visit family. And so I spent a lot of time talking on a CB. So do you have a CB now? 
No, but I think about it all the time. I think about like when I pass a trucker sometimes, I'll be like, breaker one nine, what's your 1020? Like, I think about that sometimes. I think you should totally buy wine. Ah, can you so imagine? Fun. My kids would be yeah. like, mom, just put it on waves. I'm like, no. So when did you decide that you wanted to become an academic? It was actually the culmination of two or three junior college teachers. One guy at San Antonio College and then Seal Dorish at Austin Community College. Because, you know, I was on the 12-year college plan. I graduated from my undergrad when I was 29. And so I worked a lot, took classes here and there where I could until I got, you know, to when I, when I graduated with my bachelor's degree, I went straight in the next year to my master's, then my PhD. But I had these amazing junior college teachers. I remember in San Antonio College, I don't remember the political scandal, but I remember my teacher, he wore a different Hawaiian shirt every day and he jumped up on the desk. He was yelling and screaming about a group of politicians who were pissing all over the Constitution. And then Seal Durish got really enraged about something going on in Austin. So she took our whole class down to the legislature to you know, the legislative session to like observe and make appointments to see our legislators. And I was like, oh my God, I want to be a teacher like this. Do they know those two professors? Do they know the impact you've had on them? I tried to find Seal Durish not too long ago, but um, I'm going to look again because it, and it was funny because, you know, I went to like, you know, UT, which is this amazing university and I had some great teachers there for sure. But I ha also had a lot of TAs, teaching assistants and big rooms. And, and I just remember it was really the junior college, just a bunch of scrappy people in a classroom at night working during the day. I think I was bartending and waiting tables that really, I really thought, God, you just changed my life. Could you really have a job where you were talking about what you were passionate about and change someone's life? Wow, that's great. And, and just the, the power of, of a teacher, of a professor, that's really wonderful. So that's when, when you, you saw what they were doing, you realized, oh, as you said, you could see it and now you realized you could be it. Yes, I think that that's exactly right. Yeah, and it was a long haul and it was scary and I had a lot of imposter stuff I had to work through along the way, but that's exactly right. It's funny that you said a long haul. It made me think of long haul trucking. So it all you comes got back. Long, you got the long haul in there. I in do. The end. I do. In one of your books, because I have all four sitting in front of me, you talked about your mother and the gift that she gave your family. And I don't know that she would have described it this way, but she seems to have made a decision to be a transitional figure in your family. Could you talk about the decisions that she made and, and how that influenced you? Yeah. I mean, there were just so many decisions that she made and hard decisions, you know, hard decisions. I think both my mom and my dad came from, you know, very working class. My grandmother was, you know, a beauty operator, or, you know, I think you'd say a stylist now. Her husband drove a forklift at Pearl Brewery in San Antonio. And my parents came from very kind of pretty tough working class backgrounds. My mom came from a lot of alcoholism. She, she kind of compensated for that by being the head of the drill team and valedictorian and the, you know, the president of different clubs. But yet still, my grandmother had been divorced twice and was an alcoholic. And so people weren't allowed to come over to her house. And, you know, that was the 1950s. That was like leave it to beaver era. Um, and I don't think my, my mom's house was the Cleavers. So I think in raising us, she and my dad 
really tried to give it, you know, they were married for 21 years, maybe. I feel like every family that turns direction has that person who's kind of the fulcrum up for it, you know, and that fulcrum was on my mom's back. She got into therapy. She made us go. She made us talk about our feelings. She talked about what was vulnerable and hard right around maybe the year after my parents' divorce, her only sibling was shot and killed in just a kind of a random act of violence. And we were definitely raised that vulnerability is weakness and for suckers. I mean, that was definitely the messaging growing up. You know, the fifth generation Texan, tough. It was hard because Ronnie was killed. And then my grandmother, who I adored more than anyone in the whole world, I named my daughter after her, Ellen, she quit drinking the week I was born because that was the condition under which she could see me. But she never really got sober or did her work. And so when Ronnie was killed, she kind of, I don't know, went crazy, I guess. And so it was just this horrible year. And I remember telling my mom at one point saying, you know, I'm just scared. I'm not used to seeing you, you know, weak like this because she, she was crying a lot. And I'd never really seen her cry my entire life. And I was 21 at this point. And she said... I'm vulnerable for sure and sad and scared, but I'm not weak. If I was a weak person, I'd be dead now. And I remember thinking that was the first time I thought there's a difference between vulnerability and weakness. And my mom's the strongest person I know. And so what the hell's going on? <laughs> like, what is, what kind of bill of goods have I been sold here on vulnerability? And so, yeah, she's just transformed my life and and the lives of my brother and my sisters in, in meaningful ways. She was, she turned the ship. That's so beautiful, Brene. It makes me cry. I love what you just said, what she said. I'm vulnerable, but I'm not weak. So powerful. Yeah. Yeah, she's, a, she's an amazing person. And still, it's so fun to see her now with our, all of our kids. And she's still, uh, our Christmas, her Christmas tree topper is like an ACLU gay pride statue of liberty. Like she's still... Do not mess with the Texas woman like in the Molly Ivins and Richard strain of Texas women. Wow. In the Netflix special, you quoted Darren Greatly. And what I would love for you to do is to read that out loud and then tell us why that passage had so much significance for you. Okay. So this is Teddy Roosevelt. It is not the critic who counts not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man who's actually in the arena, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again, and who with the best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who, at worst, when she fails, at least does so daring greatly. That says it all to me. I found it at a, such a hard time in my career. I had just done the TEDx Houston talk on vulnerability and it was like rapidly going viral and there was a lot of media coverage and there was so much love and support for the talk and people were so grateful for having words to talk about vulnerability and courage and wholeheartedness. But, you know, along with that, as you know, comes like just the trolls and kind of the hatefulness. And so I found it at a really hard time in my life when I needed to be reminded that I was in the arena and that I was trying to be brave with my life and my work and it's not the critic who counts. And so it's like not 
hyperbole to say my life changed when I read that quote because what I was just flooded with this belief that you know what one I'm going to be in the arena two vulnerability is not weakness it's showing up when you can't control the outcome including the trolls on you know Twitter and I'm going to stop taking feedback from people who are not also being brave and so there was really my life before that moment and my life after that moment so interesting to me because you look at it and I think so many people, except for the trolls, would have looked at this and said, okay, you know, your talk just went viral. You, you've, you've made it, right? You're, you're on the road to, to making it, whatever making it means. And yet that wasn't the experience that you were having at all. And it's just so interesting to me that I remember you had written a book prior to that called The Gifts of Imperfection. And yet that gift that you gave to every single person that listened to that talk, your TEDx talk, that gift that you gave came at a very huge price for you. I think when we put our work out in the world and when we're brave in doing that, no matter what the work is, it becomes a very uncomfortable mirror for people who are sitting on their work, holding their work and not putting themselves out in the world out of fear. And, it, and, and the response is hatred and pain. And, you know, we're so, much, we're so much better at causing pain than we are at feeling pain. That's so much what I experienced. And, you know, and it was one crappy comment for every, you know, 1,000, not supportive necessarily, but engaged. I disagree with you, but here's why. And I appreciate the conversation. Like, I don't mean you have to blindly accept what people put out in the world, or I want people to do that with my work. I think my work gets better when I'm challenged. And I love, love debate and discourse. I mean, I got into a great debate last night on Twitter about the nature of emotional labor. So, I mean, I love, I love debate, but these were like, you're ugly. I hope you die. Like these were ad hominem attacks. Yeah. I'd be curious what you think. I mean, my sense is this is the new normal. Well, and, and people are afraid. And I, I have to say, I really admire your courage because I have had, um, I think, a very small taste of the experience that you had. And I remember I had written a piece on LinkedIn about how, based on the research, that girls had to be two and a half times more competent than a man to be judged on equal footing. And the trolls just came out. And I remember... I felt inside of myself like, like I was violated in some way. And I remember going out to my people and I was like, you need to, I need you to write comments to shut them down. Because usually when people get out of hand, if I go in and I start talking back, most of them will kind of slink back to their corner. So to your point, I think it does take a tremendous amount of courage. And I'm really grateful that you've been willing to say what people said now, I have a question for you on that, because when you're in the arena, there are people in the stands. And like you said, there are some people who are um, in the cheap seats, but there are also people who are rooting you on. Can you talk a little bit about some of those people in your life? Yeah, we always talk about, we, you know, in Dare to Lead, we do this leadership training where we talk about when you go, when you walk into the arena and the arena doesn't have to be necessarily a post or a book or a talk. It can be a hard conversation. It can be speaking up in a meeting. But when we go in the arena, there's always the season ticket holders, you know, shame, scarcity, comparison. Those, those are the season ticket holders. <laughs> then up high, there's the cheap seats where those are folks who will never be brave with their stuff, but will hurl really hurtful stuff at you. Then there's the two most important seats in the arena 
which are empathy and self-compassion. And you have to really train yourself to look for those when you're in a hard moment. Because what you end up wanting to do is you end up looking at the most hurtful folks and trying to hustle for your worthiness for them. And so when I think about empathy and self-compassion, you know, I think about my empathy seat. And, you know, people always like, is that a whole section of people cheering you on? And what we found in the research is you really just need one or two people. And I'm lucky because I have, you know, I think the chief holder of my empathy seat is probably my husband, Steve. And for me, my empathy section is not filled with yes people or you're awesome people. It's filled with people who don't love me despite my vulnerability and imperfection, but because of it and are willing to tell me, hey, it felt like you were out of your integrity and you need to circle back and clean that up. Like these are people who are saying, no, sorry, I don't think it was your best. I love how you anthropomorphize these, these adjectives or ways of being, um, but I describe it as a truth teller. So my husband's my truth teller. I know that he loves me no matter what. Yes. And I also know I trust him that he will tell me the truth. And when he tells me the truth, I can believe him, but it comes only from love. Yes. And I think that's what you're saying, right? That's what empathy is. And it's hard. And so I think I, you know, I have Steve and I have, you know, my sisters work with me and my, my daughter's 20 now and she's, you know, she's a truth teller with me. And so I've, I've collected a little gang of ragtag, vulnerable, wholehearted people who believe in the work and are trying to live it. And it's just so easy for me, maybe for a lot, a lot of us, to dismiss what the people who matter the most say and order and take in with the strangers who really don't have anything valuable to add. Like it's really hard to keep focused on the right group of people. Yeah. You know what, Brene? I just had a thought when you said that, because you said, you know, a thousand comments to one and, you know, listening to the people who really care about you that have empathy and compassion. And I was reading this quote from a guy who is an expert in the psychology of killing, and we'll include it in the show notes. But basically he said, paraphrasing, there is nothing more overwhelming or violating than some type of assault from a person, from another human being. Yeah. And so he's talking about killing, but it's any kind of assault. And so that's why I think we take it so hard is that it feels like they are assaulting us, like they are really truly trying to kill us dead. So no, I mean, and that's, and it's so crazy because that's how it feels. And it's, what's weird is cognitively, you're like, why am I taking this so seriously? Like, I don't know who this person is and I don't care about this person and they don't care about me. But then the other part of your brain is like, hardwired to take that as a threat, you know? And so it's so crazy. So you've got this thing that you say that I love and I've been using it all the time is the story I am telling myself. Where did that come from? How did you come up with that? It's so important to, to understand that like I am, I am the gatherer of stories and data and then I choose words and I, I let people know what I have found. But that phrase or some variation, the story I'm telling myself, the story I'm making up, what I'm saying, what I'm, what I'm making up right now, like that floated around in my data for probably 10 years. Then when I did the research for Rising Strong and we just really said, who are the, what do the most resilient research participants that we've interviewed, people who can get up and bounce back after setback, disappointment, failure, what do they share in common? And what they share in common is a process. Um, it's really like a recovery 
balanced process. And part of that process in every single one of these research participants was some form of the story I'm telling myself. Every one of these research participants, whether they were a special forces, you know, active duty person or a, you know, or a attorney or a teacher or an artist, every one of them had the capacity and awareness to reality check the stories they made up about what was happening. So it didn't really saturate for the first, you know, three books, but then in Rising Strong is when I first start writing about it. Renee, what do you mean when you say it didn't saturate? What does that mean? Well, I'm a qualitative researcher. I'm a grounded theory researcher, and we just crossed 400,000 pieces of data. And so what we do is for qualitative data, we, instead of starting with a theory and testing it quantitatively, we start with nothing and build a theory based on people's lived experiences. And we do interviews, focus groups. Sometimes we use secondary data. And we look for patterns and themes that saturate across the data. And so, for example, I couldn't find a definition of vulnerability that made sense with the data and existing in the the dictionary that made sense with the data we were seeing. And so I interviewed and interviewed around it until what started saturating was, oh, vulnerability is an affect or an emotion of uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. So we developed a definition based on people's lived experiences once it's saturated as a full pattern in the data. Got it. Okay. I'm going to give you a hypothetical. So um, I, I work with the S-curve of learning framework and people, you know, you're on a learning curve and then you get to the top and you jump to a new one. So I would love to do a quick little role play of what do you do when you have a person on your team and they've got to the top of the learning curve, it's time for them to do something new and they're just really reluctant to do it. What would you say if you're the the manager who you're trying to get this person to jump, you know that there's all this latent innovative capacity, their brain, you know, has started, they're they're not getting dopamine, they're not learning, et cetera. As the leader or the manager, what would you say to them based on your research? I would say, um, and if I knew someone really well, let's say it's you and me, I would say, you know, Whitney, and, and, and we knew we had the shared language. I'm assuming that we have some shared language about trying to jump for something new. Um, I've watched over the last two years as, as you have really mastered the competencies and skills in this role. And I see the mastery because now you're teaching other people how to do it. I think it's time to take on some new challenges. I think you've got the ability to do it. I think you've got the, the skill and time to do it. And so what I'm wondering is what's getting in the way. What story are you making up? about leaving this, this competency that you've mastered and starting a new one. Tell me, tell me what you're thinking. That's perfect. And then that opens it up. Yeah, because the thing is, we can never, you know, one of the things that I tell leaders all the time is we can never control, I mean, anyone that's ever managed teams through change knows. Here's, here's a sentence, Whitney, you can take to the bank. In the absence of data, we make up stories. We are a meaning-making species. It is tied all the way back to the limbic system. We make up stories. Those stories help our brain understand how to protect us, how to take care of us, which is the brain's number one, you know, it's what it's wired for above all else. And so we can't control the stories that people make up, but we can be the kind of leader that offers a space 
for people to check out those stories. So if we have to let someone go from our organization, we will always have like a story rumble hour where I or somebody will sit in a room available to everyone to check out stories. Tell me what stories you're making out. And, you know, and, and we'll say, look, we can only share so much. Um, we want you to check your stories out with us. So you give everyone an opportunity Everybody. to come in. Everyone. Everybody. That is brilliant. So that you've, you've had the conversation with the person who's leaving. Then the person who's leaving also has the opportunity to say, here's the story I'm telling myself. So they can check with you. But then everyone else. Because uh-huh. that's fascinating. Because your, your point I think you're making is that when you need to let someone go, they're leaving a community. And so the community is having an experience. It's not just the manager's experience. It's not just the person who's leaving. It's the communal, it's a communal experience. Yes. It's, it's, I mean, it's plain systems theory. There's been a change and a massive change um, to the system. Everyone in the system's affected by it. And you either address that or the system will self-regulate with a false narrative that will be costly to performance, to culture, and to people. I had a conversation with my daughter. She's a little bit younger than yours. Um, she's 18 and she's a senior in high school. And I said, Miranda, I'm about to talk to Brene. She watched the special too. I'm like, what would you ask her? She said, you know, I'd like to know how we can have a productive conversation around mental health. This is a conversation that's very much on the minds of all of her classmates, et cetera. She said, kind of paraphrasing, that we talk about, you know, if someone has diabetes or they've broken a leg, we say, that's bad. But when we talk about anxiety or depression, there, even if we don't say it, the subtext is that you are bad. What are your thoughts on that? Well, first of all, just congratulations and like a thousand like big hearts to the fact that you have raised a daughter who's a senior in high school and asking that question. I think having young people like your daughter asking that question is part of the solution. The main reason we don't have honest conversations around mental health is shame. And it's so interesting that you use that example of diabetes versus, you know, like anxiety and anxiety disorder. Because the difference between shame versus guilt, guilt is I did something bad, shame is I am bad. So when we, you know, when it's a physical injury, I broke something. When it's a mental health issue, I am broken. Mm. And so the more we talk about it, like the more we're honest and normalize it, and it has changed so much in the 20 years even that I, not enough. You know, I'd say we're at the halfway point at least, maybe, maybe a third of the way, but it has changed so much since I started the research 20 years ago. But I think we have to normalize it and not use it when we learn something about someone. Like, you know, if you learn that I can get really overwhelmed and have anxiety or that, look, let's, let's just take a real, which is true. Um, I've been in recovery. It'll be 23 years. Yay. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, 23 years, I guess, next weekend or so, on the 12th, I think. One of the problems and one of the things that sets us back is I've been, I'm brave. I tell my story and I have a lot of women that say, thank you for talking openly about recovery and being sober and that's great. But then what happens when someone reduces me to that to explain away a behavior? Well, she's not very much fun. Well, she knows she's sober. Or, you know, like, God, she, I, I, you know, I really hate that idea Brene shared. We know she has anxiety. When we get reduced, you know, Harriet Lerner, who's one of my favorite writers, says that no one wants to be defined 
by their hardest struggle. And so we have to find this really interesting space between owning it and identifying it, but reject being labeled by it and reduced by it. Do you have any thoughts on how to do that? Yeah, I think we need people like you and people like me who have some wind at our backs, you know, some success saying out loud, hi, yes, I'm Brene. I'm, I'm an introvert. I can get super overwhelmed and anxious in big groups. I can speak in front of 10,000 people. That's not a big deal. But if I have to go to a party where there's 30, you know, I can pick a fight with my husband and do anything to get out of it because I get really anxious in those social settings. I'm sober. It's been the best part of my life. But, you know, like we need people to tell their stories. Hmm. We need people to say, if, you know, if you're in a room and someone says, you know, Whitney, I don't know what happened to her. You know, maybe she had one of those anxiety things she has sometimes. I need you to say, you know what? That's not my experience of Renee. Right. And I'm not comfortable with you using something she shared against her to explain her behavior. Maybe she was pissed off because you were out of line in that meeting. When you just said that, I'm thinking I, I teach a group of girls at, at our church who are 16 and 17 years old. And one of the things that came up the other day is someone talked about depression and anxiety. And, and I did. I said, well, you know, I struggle with depression. I struggle with anxiety. And I think your point is, is that we can destigmatize it when we're willing to talk about our own struggles. And I think a couple of the girls were so relieved, like, oh, I'm not alone. I, I'm not the only person that's struggling with this. And as soon as I start talking about it and you start talking about it, then it does make it easier. And, and to your point, not then reducing people to that thing that they struggle with. Yes. So that's so, so, so important. That we, we contain multitudes, you know, the Walt Whitman, like I am large, like I am a lot of different things defined by none of them. Oh, that's so great. So one of the things that you said, I'm setting you up here. So get ready. Yeah. You said ready. joy is the most vulnerable of all emotions. So what about your work and your life gives you deep joy? Mm. I've been thinking about that a lot. I've been thinking that, about it a lot. You know, I was even going to, you know, it's interesting because I'm coming to this really weird career transition place right now. And so one of the things that I talk about in the gifts of imperfection that I, I need to do my research or heal, my, heal thyself a little bit right now is a joy list. Like what's going on in your life when you're your happiest? And I came across my joy list a couple of weeks ago and realized I wasn't doing almost anything on it. So I'm cooking, practicing photography, I'm editing photos, I'm making family albums, I'm, you know in what with the A, what the big book would call spit spiritual condition, like I'm praying and meditating. I'm with my family. I'm near water. I'm hiking. Like all of those things bring me intense joy. So when you read the list, you started to make, started to make changes is what you're saying. Oh, I'm definitely making changes. It's interesting because I, I read your work a lot and I, I take so much wisdom from it because one of the things, if I look back on the last three years, I, like so many people, thought, you know, I think some of these ideas are important. I think they can make the world a better place. How do I scale them? And so I started businesses and unbelievably, they did really well and I hated it. Like I hated it. And we even had investors come and say, how, you know, we want to help you go further faster. And what I realized in this last, I don't know, maybe six months is that I'm better 
more joyful and my work is more meaningful when I am slower, closer. And so for me, a big business learning for me was I need to find great partners who are scalers and who are further faster partners. Netflix is a great example. But the way I spend my days has to be about slower, closer for me. Like I don't, when the businesses started taking off and then it was like, okay, we need like, we need to hire an engineering team and we need to full stack this and we need, so for me, it's been this really hard transition. And I think it goes back a lot, to be honest with you, Whitney, to your work about the two and a half times. I think I've spent a lot of my career proving and I'm at the place now where I'm trying to inhale and ask myself, am I doing this to prove that I can or because I want to and it brings me joy? And those two things are not the same all the time for me. For most of us, no. So now I'm really trying to make sure that when a new project comes along or when a new opportunity comes my way, instead of looking at what it could do for the work and the platform and, you know, I ask myself, what are my days going to look like? What are my next 180 days going to look like? If you say yes. If I say yes. That's really been a changer for me. Like that's, that's been big. It sounds to me like this is a new arena moment for you. Oh my God, it really is. Oh, I hate it. Like, I just want to sit in the stands and have some popcorn and like kick back for like, I don't know, six months or so. It's definitely a new arena for me. I need to be intensely and joyfully in my life in order to write about things that are meaningful for people. You know, you're a scaler and you understand this whole thing. And like, I was going to ask you, like, is there any way that could make sense? It makes complete sense. What you're saying is that you now know you're capable of scaling. You know that the work is scale-worthy, if you will. You know that people want it to scale. But the question you're asking yourself, if I understand correctly, is yeah. what do you want your role to be in that? Yes. What does that look like for you? And, there, and, and the challenge that you're having because, because of who you are is, well, you know you could do it all yourself and there's some piece of you that wants to prove that you can do it yourself, but then that pulls you back into the trap of, am I worthy? Yes. And so you're trying not to be called by the siren song of wanting to be worthy and saying, what actually makes Brene happy. Yes. And that, that's hard. It's super ironic, right? Because it's an arena moment, but it's a totally different arena moment because it's you in the arena and there's actually no one in the stands except for you and you're making the decision. Oh yeah. But let me tell you something. No, no one occupies those season tickets, the critic seats like me. <laughs> so you're the arena, you're the critic, you've got the cheap seats, you've got the empathy and compassion yes. on your good days. I guess yes. that's for all of us, isn't it? I think that's all of us. I mean, one of the things about self-compassion that's like my little trigger to help, to help me is, am I talking to myself like I talk to someone I love? Ellen's a year older than Miranda. She's 19 or she'll soon be 20, sophomore in college. And so if I make a mistake or I'm trying to practice some self-care or do what I really love, is that how I would talk to Ellen embarking on something? And 90% of the time, the answer is like, I would never say that to Ellen. So here's my final question for you. It's 180 days from now, now that you're in this moment of transition and you're really battling it out with yourself, 
what will it look like if you can say, I was brave and I won? You're literally killing me. Um, God, I keep showing up for the hard stuff and the hard decisions and the hard conversations. And I am not just teaching and writing my work, I'm living my work. And I'm, and I'm at water polo games and parents weekend and reading books and working out and fighting the fight in a way that makes me feel spiritually grounded. You're whole. I'm whole. Yeah. Brene, thank you so much. It was so generous of you to take the time. It's been really fun and a pleasure. Thank you. This was like the best therapy session ever. Are you kidding me? Thank you. (laughs) It's easy to look at someone like Brene and think they've always been, she's always been at the top of her game. So I thought it was interesting that Brene was a late bloomer academically. She got her bachelor's degree at 29. I find this encouraging, and I hope that any of you who might be feeling like it's too late to go after something that you care about, that you'll say, no, it's not. Paraphrasing George Eliot, it's never too late to be the person you might have been. That being said, the price of putting something into the world that can change lives are epithets from people in the cheap seats, and this is scary. But if you sit on your work and gifts and don't share them, you are at risk for sitting in the cheap seat yourself. It's not easy to be brave in your work and with your life, but it's easier to be brave with people like Brene daring to lead the way. Remember, if it's scary and it's lonely, you're likely on the right path to personal disruption. One of the biggest gifts of Brene's work, there are so many, but here's one, has been this phrase, the story I'm telling myself right now. So simple, yet so powerful. As she says, in the absence of data, we make up stories. We're a meaning-making species. And I don't know about you, but I tell myself some really tall tales in the absence of data. Having that phrase as a tool has made a huge difference for me in conversations with my family and with members of my team. I thought the discussion at the end was especially fascinating. If you find yourself in a situation where scaling your business or scaling your effort has turned into a business or initiative you don't want to run, ask yourself, what can I do differently? Who can you partner with so that what you're building energizes rather than depletes you? Further faster, slower, closer are choices. Choices we get to make. Choices that you get to make. I'm really hopeful that Brene's message brings you as much solace as it brings me. I'm grateful for her gift of vulnerability and courage. To say thank you to her and to you for listening, we have four copies of her most recent book, Dare to Lead, to give away to four listeners. To be eligible to win one of the copies, follow me at Johnson Whitney and at Brene Brown on Instagram and share what you most appreciated about this Encore episode. Let her know how much you appreciate her work. Thank you again to Brene Brown for being our guest. Thank you to our team, Jennifer Brotherson, Emily Cottrell, Whitney Job, Melissa Reddy, and Nancy Wilson. I'm Whitney Johnson, and this is Disrupt Yourself. <laughs>